All right. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see your faces. Um, my name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, yeah, although Lent is, is not yet over technically, today does mark the end of our Lenten series that we've called Questions, Bringing Everything to God. Lent is the season on the church calendar where we are focused on this Christian spiritual practices of lament and repentance. We take time to intentionally reflect on the difficult aspects of human existence so that when we get to the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, we know exactly what it is that we are being delivered and redeemed from, right? Uh, we have sat in the ashes of our human failure. We've wandered in the dust of our sin, and now we get to fully appreciate and embrace our new life in Jesus. This is why I think it's so important to participate in Good Friday before we celebrate Easter. Fully celebrate the gift of life that we have in the resurrection, it, we have to first acknowledge the, and, and express our gratitude to Jesus for the great cost of that new life. There was the suffering and humiliation that he endured because he loves us. So I would encourage you, make some time to come next Friday at 6 p.m. to our Good Friday service so that we can regard the sacrificial love of our Savior together. Uh, but we're not there yet. We still have one more question that we're going to sit with. In this series, we've, we've wrestled with a lot of questions. We've talked about doubt. We've talked about, uh, uh, like, like, is it okay for me to question God? Um, we've talked about lament, right? Is it okay for me to express my sorrow to God? Um, how do I turn my sorrow into worship? We've talked about repentance. Uh, we've talked about grief and loss. Uh, how long, uh, or um, what are we doing? What is God doing in our grief? We've learned about the role of lament and repentance in the life of the worshiper. We know what it's for. But now we get to a very common question of the psalmist today. How long, O Lord? How long? You know, Lent and Advent before Christmas, right? These are 40-day periods of time. 40, why 40? Well, in the scriptures, 40 is often used to represent the, what the ancient Hebrews called an epoch. This is like a significant change over a course of time, moving from one season of life into another, one era, one way of living into another. And these seasons like Lent and Advent, they deliberately put us in these seasons of waiting and anticipation for the revelation of Christ. And in these seasons of waiting, it's really uh, uh, human to ask, how long, O Lord? And this question, how long, O Lord, occurs about 20 times in the Psalms, which is a lot. And it's come to characterize this, this category of lament that we call the individual prayer for help. Sometimes when we are enduring really difficult seasons, this feels like a very natural question. How long, Jesus? How long? How much longer are the hits going to keep coming? How much longer are you going to continue to allow me to endure these things? This is very human, isn't it? I knew that I had reached some sort of rite of passage in my parenthood the first time I was in the car with my son, and he asked this very common question. Are we there yet? <laughs> right? I was like, oh, it's, we've arrived. This is where we are, right? And like little kids, they have this threshold, right? And once they get there, it's very hard to dial it back, right? And especially for my son, once he gets his, his will set on something, it, he, he does whatever he can do to get there, right? And the first time he asked me, uh, uh, are we there yet? I thought, okay, here's my moment. How am I going to handle this question? And so I said, you know, we're not, we're not there yet, bud. I know it's really hard to wait, isn't it? We got about another hour. So I'll let you know when we're getting closer, but until then, why don't you play with your toys? Here's some activities you can do. 
And in my naivete, I thought, okay, good job, Lane. Like, I acknowledged his feelings. I gave him some options. I gave him a timeline. Parenting accomplished, right? Like, that's how I felt in the moment. Yeah, he asked that question about 20 more times in about a 45-minute window, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? There's parenting in theory, right? And there's parenting in practice. I remember before I had a kid, I was like, you know, I'd be on an airplane, and I'd see a kid with an iPad, and I'd think, oh, I'm never going to be that parent that gives the kid an iPad. Oh, Lane, how cute. How cute your expectations were, right? That six-hour trip to go visit my family in Hawaii, yeah, I became a big fan of the iPad. But it's, it's naturally, it's very difficult for us to continue doing a thing, enduring a thing, especially when I don't have an end in sight, right? We like to know what we're working towards. You know, whenever I'm on the treadmill, <laughs> which is not often, um, but whenever I'm on the treadmill, I'm often looking at the distance and the time left on my workout, right? I'm obsessing over it, which probably makes it worse. But I'm like, how much longer do I have to keep up this torture, right? How many calories do I have to burn to justify that Chick-fil-A that I just ate or whatever, right? And when we look at these seasons of suffering and lament like this and we ask, how much longer do we have? There's a few ways that we can deal with it. There's a few ways to approach our pain and our suffering. First is we think about uh, it as something that we can escape or that we can avoid in this life. Like, I've been through something painful, but one day I, I'm gonna, this painful thing will be over, and then I can move on, and I can try to keep my life from falling apart to get to this place again, which is a really anxious way of living because it's actually something that's impossible to accomplish. And we don't even realize that we're thinking this way sometimes, but we structure our lives in a way that avoids suffering and pain altogether. I'm convinced that I can somehow be the exception to the rule, right, that I can somehow avoid pain. Now, it's true that sometimes in life, we just make poor decisions that lead to turmoil later, and we cannot make those decisions, and our lives are a little easier. But Emmanuel mentioned last week in Job, right? Sometimes you can do everything right, structure everything right, live blamelessly in the sight of God even, and yet experience suffering and loss and pain. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. That's what happens. So we can avoid or escape it, or we can wallow in it right? This is where I find pain and suffering around every corner. I'm pessimistic and skeptical about life. I have trouble with things like gratitude. And with this approach, I tend to treat joy like it's a stranger because suffering is more familiar. And I'm unwilling to believe that finding joy is possible. You know, Jesus promises us in John 16. He says, you know what? In this life, you will have trouble. But what does he say right afterwards? But take heart. I have overcome the world. So we can spend our lives trying to avoid any kind of pain and suffering. We can wallow in it, believing that suffering is the only certainty that I have in this life. Or we can prepare for it. We can, under the guidance and grace of Jesus, prepare ourselves for the reality that life can keep coming. And sometimes when it rains, it's going to pour. But when we prepare ourselves for our lives in this way, we can be fully present to the reality that's right in front of us, not caught off guard by it, right? And the only way to prepare well for this scenario is to do it with Jesus, who is the man of suffering, acquainted with pain. We bring our lives to Jesus in worship, and we seek refuge in his promises. Always remember his promise. In this life, you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So, we're going to go to the Psalms today. And the reason we're going to the Psalms today is because the Psalms, they give us structures of worship 
that, that, that model for us uh, a way to be emotionally and spiritually adaptable. Some might use the term resilient, yeah? We know that we cannot control 99.99587% of the things that happen in the world, right? COVID taught me that. Most of what happens in the world is completely outside of my control. So rather than trying to escape or avoid the pain and reality of this world, or try to control it, I learn to worship in every season. I prepare to respond to anything and everything by bringing everything and anything as it happens to God. Mourning, grieving, angry, happy, hopeful, everything in between. I can be prepared for this very unpredictable life by knowing how to respond to any and every situation in worship. That's what the Psalms help us do. We lament when it's appropriate, and we rejoice when it's appropriate. But here's what's tricky about that. Because it is always appropriate to mourn these days. And always has been for all of history, right? Because we can't keep the plates of the world spinning. The, the second that I've dealt with some kind of adversity, there's something else waiting in the ranks. Either for me or for someone next to me or someone close to me, someone I love, right? The world is burdened with suffering and pain all the time. And because of the advent of globalized media, I am instantaneously aware of all things that are happening everywhere all at once. So in this life, we're never going to run out of things to mourn. We won't. And grieve. And I think the Psalms teach us that we should never be allowed to watch the news without being on our knees in prayer. Here's what I mean by this. We just bury our heads in the sand and we say, you know what, there's too much going on in the world. I don't want to know. I'm out. It's too much. It's overwhelming. I've, I've been guilty of this. When we bury our heads in the sand, we all of a sudden become irrelevant to our culture, irrelevant to the community around us. We are here to be salt and light. We're not here to just hide in a holy huddle until Jesus comes back. We have work to do. So we can't just close our eyes to everything. But also, I can't surrender to the anxiety of my world. Just buying into all the clickbait and all the incendiary language that's meant to make me feel afraid. Because that's what it's meant to do, if you didn't know. They want you to be scared because that's what gets you there watching. I can't be enveloped in that. No, I have to be engaged with my world while being fully present and abiding in Jesus. I have to be engaged with the issues and the problems of the world while being completely surrendered to the presence of God. So there's always a reason to grieve and mourn. There's almost always also a reason to rejoice. I love this quote from Tony Scarcello. It says, for, every, for, oh, sorry, for all of the scary pain and evil in the world, there is just as much inexplicable beauty and goodness. So while there's always a reason to mourn and grieve, there's also always a reason to rejoice. Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord every once in a while, sometimes, always, and again I will say it, rejoice. So we've used this several times during Lent, this term, spiritual formation, right? Spiritual formation is the retraining of our spiritual reflexes so that we can stop mindlessly reacting to the world and start intentionally responding to God. That's what spiritual formation does. So you can write this down. The Psalms train us to be agile in worship as we engage with the unpredictable nature of life. The Psalms train us to be agile in worship, you can also add in prayer, as we engage with the unpredictable nature of life. So this very common question in the Psalms, a very human question, how long, 
O Lord? And for this question, we're going to turn to Psalm 13. We're going to spend some time there, and then we'll hop quickly over at the end to Psalm 30. Now, the Psalms are fascinating. They're a collection of varying styles of poetry and song, and there are five main categories of Psalms. There's the individual prayer for help, there's the corporate prayer for help, and these are both forms of lament. Almost half of the Psalms either fit into or overlap with this category. Then there's the individual prayer of gratitude, there's the hymn, which is an exaltation declaring God's goodness, and then there's the Psalms of instruction. And these are meant to be, uh, provide guidance for the worshiper. Now, Psalm 13, where we're going to be today, is an individual prayer for help. It's a lament. And many have regarded Psalm 13 as the perfect paradigm for this kind of psalm. So let's jump in. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV today. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Short and sweet. So what you'll notice about this psalm, and like most of the psalms, is that the specific circumstances regarding the psalm are vague. We know that there's something going on in the life of David, who is the psalmist in this case, but we, the reader, are not privy to the specifics of his situation. And I think the vagueness is likely intentional, because it makes this psalm immediately accessible to anyone who's reading it. Psalms are meant to be revisited, to be reflected on, to be prayed over, right? And this reminds us that the people who lived back then are people just like you and me. Yes, culture was radically different, technology was radically different, everything around human beings was radically different, but guess what? They were still fully human, like you and me. We tend to think about people in the Bible as these like static, inhuman entities, these figures in the story. But in all the ways that matter, they were human. They felt pain, they laughed, they loved their families, they had friendships, they cried, they desired purpose in their lives, they felt discouraged, they felt anxious, and they suffered. So although we may not know the exact circumstances behind the psalmist's words, we know what it is to feel like this, right? No one will ever be able to fully understand you the way that you do, except God. But we all have access to empathy and compassion because although I I may not know what it means to suffer like you suffer, and you may not know what it means to suffer like I suffer, we all know what it is to suffer. So let's break this down. The psalmist poses a question, this very familiar question, how long, O Lord, in this season of suffering, how long, how long will this financial burden weigh heavily on me? How long will this illness Keep me from living the way I want to live. How long will this relationship continue to be this war zone that it's been? How long will I have to keep attending funerals of the people that I love? How long will I have to endure in this lifeless marriage? How long will my child be wandering and lost? How long? You you fill in the blank. Sometimes when life hits, it just feels like the hits keep coming. And we ask, really? How long? How long is this going to keep going? 
We'll get to the answer to that in a bit. But first, I want to take notice of the structure of this psalm. So the psalmist David, he starts with a series of questions, and you can kind of feel the exhaustion, right? The confusion, even the anger in these questions. He does eventually get to a place of praise and hope. He ends there, but in order to get to that place, he starts here. What's interesting is that these opening questions seem a bit rhetorical. It's almost like he doesn't really want an answer. It's more like he's accusing God of something. These questions are being directed at the promises of God. David feels abandoned by God. He says, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? He's looking at the promises of God and the character of God, and he's looking at his current circumstances, and he's not understanding how these things line up. And this is what happens to us, right? Sometimes things happen in our lives, and they call into question who we thought God was. Really, God? I thought you were supposed to be my refuge. Like, I thought that you were the God who protects me because I feel pretty unsafe right now. I feel pretty exposed right now. I feel pretty hurt right now. These questions are accusatory. Are you really just not going to look at me? Do you not see me down here? Have you forgotten? Are you asleep at the wheel? (laughs) This kind of reminds me of that story in the Gospels, right? Where Jesus and the disciples, they take a boat out into the water and a big old storm hits and it threatens to kill them all. So all the disciples are like doing what you and I would do and they're freaking out and they're trying to do whatever they can to save the boat. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap in the back, just on a cushion, not a care in the world, right? And do you remember what they say to him? They say, do you not care that we're going to drown? Which is a fair question, right? I'd probably ask the same thing. Sounds a lot like Psalm 13. It's like they accuse Jesus of not caring about them, right? And honestly, to us, when God fails to move in our time, when he fails to act when and how we think he should act, it feels like he's indifferent, doesn't it? And guess what? It's actually not wrong to feel that way. Sometimes religion tends to make us feel like these very honest human questions are a sign of our lack of faith. But remember the thing we say around here all the time. Faith is not the absence of doubt, it is the audacity of trust. So when I experience confusion, when who God says he is, when his promises don't seem to make sense in light of what I'm going through, this is when it is appropriate to lament. We turn those questions, we turn those doubts, we turn those dark feelings into worship. You can write this down. We lament when our reality seems to be at odds, with what we know to be true of God. We lament when our reality seems to be at odds with what we know to be true of God. God, I believe that you're good, but it doesn't really feel like that right now. And this is true of all of the lament psalms. The scriptures give us permission to express our confusion and our grief in this way. It's actually not only okay, it's not just giving us permission, it's saying that it's a command. It's important that we do, that if we want to experience joy and the peace and the hope of God, we first need to deal with the grief and the sorrow and our anxiety, right? Emmanuel talked about this last week. If I'm unable to fully live into the joy in my life that God has for me, it's probably because I haven't really dealt with the grief. We need to lament 
in order to live into the hope of the Christian life. One biblical scholar said this about these opening questions. He says, in these two remarkable verses, we discover that the path to ecstasy begins at the gate of honesty. And then Westerman said this, the one who laments his suffering to God does not remain in his lament, but before this point can be reached, the suffering must express itself. It must be put into words. So we're talking about how we deal with our emotions. So there's three ways that we can deal with our emotions, okay? One is passively. I can passively deal with my emotions. I pretend that I don't feel, or I convince myself that I actually don't feel, right? And uh, guys, by the way, when I was writing this sermon, God was kind of like looking at this and going like, are you listening to me? Because this is me. I tend to feel things like way after the fact. And I just, I just deal. I just stuff it down. I just move forward. Duty and honor. That's like we just move forward, right? Don't worry about your feelings. And what I think is courage and bravery ends up bleeding out and spilling out and leaking all around me. And guess what? I can't tell that I'm freaking out, but you know who can tell? Everyone else. <laughs> Everyone in my life is like, he's not okay, right? This pathway actually discourages honesty and vulnerability, and it's dangerous because it parades around as bravery and toughness. I don't feel. I'm tough. I'm not sad. I'm fine. What it actually reveals to us is that it's weakness. It reveals to us that we don't have the emotional fortitude to sit in our feelings. And if we don't deal with those emotions, if we don't get a hold of them, guess what? They're going to get a hold of you. You just can't stuff it down and think you're going to be okay. You're going to leak. Sorry, that's weird imagery, but you will. <laughs> you're going to crack. Okay, so we can't deal with them passively. We can deal with them indulgently. We bow to our emotions and we give them authority and final say in our lives. This is the pathway that what I feel actually shapes my reality. And this is dangerous too because we know that our feelings sometimes lie, don't they? You ever been reading a text message and you infer a tone into it that the person did not intend upon reading or sending the message, right? Sometimes my feelings tell me that I need to eat according to my appetite, and God knows I do not need to eat according to my appetite, right? I wish that that whole box of chocolate-covered macadamia nuts in one sitting was good for me, but lo and behold, it's not, right? And sometimes I can feel worthless and depressed and feel like the world would be better off without me. And that, too, is a lie. This is why we don't trust our reality and our identity to our feelings alone. Because sometimes they're not trustworthy. Sometimes we need to go to our Creator, our Heavenly Father, who designed our feelings, to gain His truth, despite our feelings, to gain His perspective. And in time, the more we spend time with Jesus, our feelings and our perspective start to look more like His. I spend time with Jesus and I, and I involve myself in spiritual formation where I retrain my spiritual and emotional reflexes to embrace God's truth, right? So not passively, not indulgently. Here's how we do it, intentionally. This is where I don't ignore my feelings, I don't indulge in my feelings, but I listen to them. I take notice of them, I take inventory of them, I grab a hold of them, I lean into them with intentionality and I bring them to God as worship. God, this is my reality. This is my truth, my perspective, but I know it's incomplete. So reveal to me your truth, your perspective, your reality. 
And in this pathway, I embrace the complex and nuanced reality of my feelings, knowing that God did give them to me for a reason, and they serve all sorts of good purposes in my life. But sometimes they're off base, and I need to receive the truth of my Heavenly Father. If the Psalms do anything, they encourage us to be deeply feeling creatures. But here's what's interesting about being deeply feeling creatures. The fact that the full range of human emotion is expressed in the Psalms shows us that the intention was not just to let our emotions run wild. It's true that God can handle anything we can throw at him. This is true. But here's the thing. If we want to get something out of the experience in some way, we need to be guided by God's process. Here's what I mean by this. The Psalms are highly structured. What I, they're, they're incredibly thoughtful poems and works of music, and the genius of these psalms is hidden from us because we're not immersed in ancient Hebrew. But believe me, these are masterful works of art, incredibly intricate and complex. When we bring our emotions to God, the psalms give us an example of what it means to bring them to God with intention. We see these really honest, brutal expressions of sorrow that get really, really ugly. It's unfiltered, but... It's finely crafted. It's like watering a lawn with a hose. There's a couple of ways that I could do this. I could give my toddler a hose without a nozzle, and by the end of that, everything will be wet from his socks to the neighbor's windows, right? It's a good time. Or I can put that same water into a pressure washer. And now that same water and those same emotions are being propelled with intention and purpose. I give my toddler the hose if I want to laugh and cool off on a hot day. But if there's a wasp nest that I need to knock over, don't do that. I'm just kidding. But if there's a, a moss growing on the sidewalk, if there's junk in my soul that needs to be cleaned, if there's gunk that needs to be purged, I use the pressure washer. This is my unfiltered, honest emotions focused through the lens of mindfulness, intentionality, prayer, and worship. It actually requires that we show up to the process. We don't just spill it all out and let it be. We can do that, and we do do that. But eventually, we need to get to a place where we say, okay, God, here's the spill. Now let's get to work. What do we do with it? We can bring the garden hose to God, and he delights in the connection with his children. Messy prayer is great prayer. But if we want to do work, if we want to grow, if we want to purge the scum off the sidewalk, it requires intention. It requires prayerfulness and mindfulness. So this is not a call to be passive about our emotions and ignore them. That's not emotional or spiritual health. That is emotional and spiritual constipation, right? It's not just a call to live in our emotions either and be blown and tossed about them as if they are the final word in my life. That's emotional and, t and, and spiritual dysentery, yes? I know this is a weird analogy, but stick with me. We are meant to live lives that are emotionally and spiritually regular, Just went right there. You're not going to forget the analogy. <laughs> Our lives are meant to exist in intentional rhythms of grief and joy. Intentional. When we experience things that warrant celebration and gratitude, we got to lean into it. Don't just passively feel grateful. Express your gratitude. Celebrate. Sometimes we need to discipline ourselves to rejoice and celebrate because it's not always easy or natural to do. But gratitude is a choice, right? 
Sometimes we need to discipline ourselves to grieve and mourn. And that can be exhausting. But this is the way that we're fully human. We fully present our emotions and our experiences to God. And we're fully present to Him and His truth. Because here's the thing, there are going to be times where I'm blinded by my own comfort, my own joy, when God wants to break my heart about something. And there may be times where I'm blinded by my own sadness and my own stuff, and God actually wants me to celebrate this over here. And sometimes we need to dance with the tension that these seasons can carry both realities at the same time. Maybe there will be seasons where you have to mourn the loss of something in your life and celebrate the birth of that same thing in someone else's. There may be times where I have to grieve the loss of my job, but celebrate my brother or sister finding their dream job, where I have to mourn the loss of my child and celebrate the birth of someone else's. Life is never just one thing. So instead of trying to control anxiously these seasons or avoid them completely, what what would happen instead if I showed up to them? and then brought them with me to God as worship. Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, but take courage, it takes courage, I have overcome the world. So we bring our questions to God, but notice, the psalmist does not receive an answer from God before the psalm is over, and yet he still turns to worship and praise. He poses these questions to God in lament, and he makes these requests to God, and he says, God, look at me, Restore to me my life before I sleep in death, before my enemies gloat over me, and before he receives an answer for for his help, he turns back to God in worship. He offers up heavy lament, and then he expresses trust in God, not knowing how long this trial will be before it comes to an end. He's actually left with the same question he started with. How long, O Lord, only now? He has reaffirmed his trust in God, and he's prepared to face his demons. He says, I trust in your unfailing love. He says, the Lord has been good to me. Have you ever looked back and thought, how foolish? God has taken care of me. This psalmist is someone who is practicing the art of lament. This is someone who holds nothing back in their concerns and their questions, and yet they embrace the goodness and the love of God. You know, between the four Gospels, Jesus asked 183 questions. Or sorry, he was asked 183 questions. Guess how many he directly answered? Eight. (laughs) Jesus asked 307 questions which means Jesus was 40 times more likely to ask a question than to give an answer. And if the patterns of Jesus are any indication, we're going to have a lot of questions for God, and we might not get a direct answer from him when and how we want them. God's not raising a bunch of robots who make a request and get an answer. That's not how we get wisdom. He's in the business of transforming us into the kind of people he can trust with his kingdom. So the way that we grow in wisdom is not just to ask a question and get an answer. That's not how school works, or it's not how it should work, right? The way we gain in wisdom is we take our question to our teacher, and sometimes they give us better questions to sit with. That's where wisdom starts. What would it look like to bring all of our questions to God, and then to release those questions to him, and then to trust him with the outcomes? to choose to believe that in our questions, God is doing a thing to grow us into maturity. 
So how long? How long, O Lord? For this, we're going to hop over to Psalm 30 real quick. Psalm 30, in many ways, is a direct example of Psalm 13, where the Psalm, Psalm 13, is, he's in a place of deep lament and sorrow. In Psalm 30, he comes out the other side, and he's witnessed his deliverance and his uh, redemption from the Lord. Verse 1, he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my, un- my foes rejoice over me. If we remember, this was a fear in Psalm 13 that his enemies would overtake him. Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought, me, brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. So Sheol was kind of the Hebrew idea of death or the grave. Remember, he expressed fear that he would sleep the sleep of death. And here's the interesting thing. In this passage, God let him go there. He actually let him descend into Sheol but he didn't leave him there. He brought him back to life. It's an important difference. Sometimes God's going to let us descend into the pit, but we rest in the peace knowing that that is not our final destination. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. And then we remember the opening question of the psalm, how long, O Lord? Well, here we get the answer. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Do we have an eternal perspective? The scriptures describe our lives as a vapor, here one day and gone the next. Even a lifetime of suffering for me is but a blip on the timeline when it comes to the indescribable joy of eternity. Skip down to verse 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Remember, the sackcloth is there to signify mourning and grief. And this is prophetic reality that, hey, guess what? There's going to be a time coming where we don't need to be covered in our shame at all. Verse 12, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30 is not a permanent reality, right? This mountaintop experience, this high, this joy that we feel won't last forever, but it is a foretaste of what will. Because we know that Jesus has suffered and he has triumphed. We get to look back on this life and rejoice and remember what God has brought us out of, that although we have descended into Sheol, we have not been left there. We have been brought back to life. Here's the thing, guys. In a physical sense, we're all dying Happy Sunday, I'll see you next week. No, we're all, we're all within like a hundred years of death, right? But we are all spiritually alive, awaiting the resurrection. And this tiny blip on the timeline that is our lives, we as a people of God, we get to rejoice in our agony. Because though suffering may endure for a, for a time, heaven is coming forever, Right? I want to end on this quote and invite the worship team forward. We are simultaneously people of the cross and people of the resurrection. We're going to go to communion with that. This is our hope. This is our hope. Jesus is a man acquainted with pain who understands what it is to suffer. His body was broken for us His blood was spilled for us 
so that he could go to Sheol. He could go to the depths of death and suffering and then defeat it by rendering it ineffective against the author of life. That's what Jesus offers us, a hope. So let's take the bread, his broken body, and remember his sacrifice together. And in the same way, his blood. Jesus, we are grateful for the new life that you promised to us. We are grateful that although in times we may descend into Sheol, descend into the pit, you will not leave us there. We thank you that although trials and suffering may endure for a time, that joy comes in the morning, that joy is our permanent state. We love you, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.